Till Death Do Us Part is a lighthearted and sometimes satirical true crime podcast where we present our dysfunctional married take on serious cases involving other dysfunctional relationships. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 106th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. Honey, I need you to start sticking up for me a little bit more. All right. <laughs> Our daughter just said that I looked like Corella DeVille because... because of the gray stripe in my hair. And you did not defend me. I laughed. <laughs> Does that help? No, because she thinks that she can say stuff like that to me, and it really hurts my feelings. The difference is I don't color my hair, so I have the equivalent white stripe, but it's spread out around all of my hair. But that's not the point. Oh. The point is, is that our daughter, who's 12, has now begun to bully me a little bit. And I don't want to use that word because I think it's overused, but she's is now my bully and I have to live with her. But Cruella DeVille is hot. Well, the new one... Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, what's her face that I don't I don't know. Emma Stone. Emma Watson. Emma Emma her. Stone. See, she's not 400 years old. <laughs> no. She's probably not even as old as you are. No, she's not. She's See? young. No, she was calling me the Disney rendition, the animated one. Because of the white streak in your hair. Yes. Just defend me next time. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Can't do nothing. <laughs> what you can do, though, is tell me some factoids. All right, fine. I'm going to present some factoids that are semi-factual. Actually, these are all very factual. So you can look them up and be just as horrified as uh, Melissa's going to be. Oh, goody. I'm going to start off with two Scottish doctors that originally invented the first chainsaw prototype. Do you know what it was actually for? To cut up bodies. No, it was for childbirth. A chainsaw? You're, yeah. In your vagina. Well, okay. Oh, he's got a piece of paper. I All actually right. printed it out. The prototype of the chainsaw familiar today in the timber industry was pioneered in the late 18th century by two Scottish doctors, John Erkin and James Jeffrey, for symphysiotomy and excision of diseased bone, respectively. The chain hand saw, so like a chainsaw, but it was cranked by hand because this was before engines and stuff. Okay. It had a fine serrated link chain, which was cut on the concave side, it was invented around 1783 to 1785. And I pulled up pictures of it, too, which is pretty cool. It's oh. horrifying. Oh, my God. To think about. Basically, I'm going to try and consolidate this. So they use this during labor where the joint that holds the mother's pelvis together is cut to make the birth canal wider. Holy crap. And if you look this up, you're going to see all oh, this is 100% true. It's, it's fascinating, actually. But now it's an outdated, obviously outdated medical procedure. They have other ways of doing it. 
But ultimately, he invented this and used it for, say, removing limbs that were diseased to make basically cleaner cuts, so to speak. But this was like a hand chainsaw. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So for those of you, you know, on the road to childbirth, you should look this up so that you're even more mortified. That's horrible. Yeah. These poor women. It says, while a heroic concept, the symphysiotomy had too many complications for most obstetricians. But Jeffrey's ideas became accepted, especially after the development of anesthetics. Mechanized versions of the chainsaw were developed, but in the later 19th century, it was superseded in surgery by the giggly, G-I-G-L-I, twisted wire saw, which sounds equally horrific. Oh, my gosh. For much of the 19th century, however, the chainsaw was a useful surgical instrument. Oh, my. I'm I'm kind of in pain a little bit. Yeah, I'm sweating, but not because of that. I have a splitting headache, so I apologize. (laughs) And Melissa went to find me ibuprofen, and she brought me two, and I threw them in my mouth, as one would do. And, you know overpowering taste of perfume. I knew I had two ibuprofen somewhere in my stuff, and I found it at the bottom of my basket of scents. Yeah, 10 (laughs) 10 minutes ago. And I said, hey, was by any chance, was this out loose somewhere? And you go, yeah. I go, yeah, that's what it tastes like, perfume. I didn't want to tell him that I found them. But, you know, I'm such a good wife. You're welcome. All right, here we go. Here's something else horrific. The U.S. military has lost several nuclear weapons, and not all of them have been recovered. Oh, in the ocean? A lot of them, and on the land. What? According to the BBC, the U.S. has lost and never found at least three nuclear bombs. There have been at least 32 known instances where the U.S. accidentally lost, launched, set off, or had a nuclear weapon stolen. These are called Broken Arrows. Oh, there's a movie called Broken Arrow with Christian Slater. That's why that sounds familiar. And John Travolta. It was like a big movie in the 90s, and it was exactly about that. Yeah, so it's a very real thing. It, it's 400 pages long. Oh Obviously, I can't gosh. read it all. There's specific areas that they know stuff has fallen and they just can't find it. And or a lot of it might have been recovered, but they're not going to, you know, tell everyone that they found it or that they lost it. Because if they admit that they lost it, then that makes them not look good. Well, I mean. But there was a lot of eyewitness accounts where they've seen like stuff fall out, crash, things right. like that. So, oh, yeah, wow. You're welcome. All right, this is always fascinating to me, the insects. (laughs) There is a species of caterpillar out of Great Britain that tricks ants into thinking it's an ant queen in distress. (gasps) The ants then take this caterpillar back to their nest, where the caterpillar continues acting like a queen but ends up devouring all of the ant larvae. This obviously destroys the ant colony from the inside. Oh, we need to get some of those. It is called the Blue Butterfly Caterpillar. We need to get those. I bet they sell them on Amazon. Yeah, but then I bet that brings some other whole host of nightmarish problems. Probably. Um, It's also referred to as Large Blue. Hmm. I don't know. Whatever. 
The large blue releases pheromones and changes its body shape to mimic red ant larvae, thereby fooling the ants into thinking they got out of the colony. In turn, the ants bring them back in. It can also fool the red ants into thinking it's the queen by imitating the sounds of an adult queen so the other ants feed it. And then it can also imitate the queen in distress, which then brings them back in. It's, it's fascinating. What a cool thing. All right, I got a lot more, but it's going to take too long, so forget it. You're out. <laughs> okay. Well, I yeah. guess that's kind of good because this is a little bit of a long one. So. Yeah, so vaginal chainsaw, oh, God. missing nuclear warheads, mm-hmm. and ant queen. What are they called? Ant queen. Butterfly larva oh. that mimic ant queens. Caterpillar. Caterpillar. Well, thank you for those. You're welcome. Just think of the worst possible way, and that's probably the way it is. Okay. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Daniel. Miss Melissa. You ready for my case? Yep. Even though you have a headache? Yeah, but it's okay because I'm distracted by the perfume taste in my mouth. (laughs) Like I've been licking an old lady's neck. Oh, are you saying my perfume smells like an old lady? No, the perfume that has absorbed into the ibuprofen I took tastes like what an old lady smells like. Okay, all right. Well, this is the case of Jeff and Susan Wright. And this case was recommended by one of our 11 listeners, Christy J. Thanks, Christy. That's awesome. Thank you. On the evening of Saturday, January 18th, 2003, Attorney at law Neil Davis walked into the Harris County Criminal Justice Center on Franklin Street, which housed the district attorney's office. He was noticeably nervous. Neil's hands were shaking as he handed the intake division staff member a business card from his prestigious Houston, Texas law firm. On the back was the address of a home on Berry Tree Drive in the middle-class subdivision of White Oak Bend, located in the Cypress-Fairbanks region of Houston, also known as Cypher. That's like a place. That's like a place. Neil said that he was a defense attorney, and due to attorney-client privilege, he could not tell the authorities who he was representing. Before leaving, he turned around and shockingly said, There is a dead body at this address, and I can't say anything else. With that, Neil walked out. What Neil Davis had seen had shaken him to his core. The back of a man's head and the left upper shoulder and arm protruding awkwardly out of a hole that had been dug near a backyard patio with fresh potting soil thrown haphazardly over the remains. A hand had been torn away from the body and was lying on the cement near where the family's chow mix dog was still digging. Okay, because I'm like, wait a minute. Why bother burying it halfway? But there you go. The dead man who appeared to be lifting himself out of the grave was that of 34-year-old Jeff Wright. And Neil Davis's new client was Jeff's wife of over four years, 25-year-old Susan Wright. What had led the beautiful wife and young mother to have brutally murdered her husband? Allegedly. Allegedly. Was there something that had been hiding behind the couple's perfect exterior? 
Okay, so just imagine this. You are a lawyer. You're called to someone's home. They're going through this whole story with you, and I'll get into that. And then they take you outside to see a dead body that actually looks like it's lifting itself out of the grave. A hand just lying there. And the dog is still digging, still digging at the potting soil. Okay, so what would you do? Is the body protruding because the dog started to pull it out? The body is protruding because it wasn't buried deep enough, and the dog was digging through the potting soil. Okay, anyone who's watched any crime TV shows knows you're supposed to pour concrete on top of it. (laughs) And lie. And lie. Hey, I need a new shed in the backyard, and uh, that's where he's going is underneath it. Yeah, we'll get into it. This wasn't thought very far in advance, I think, so. Yeah. If I have to get rid of you, I'm going to get a new shop in the backyard. (laughs) just want you to know. All right. Y'all know where to find me. Where's Melissa? I don't know, but I'm building a (laughs) kick-ass shop in the backyard. Well, you ready for this ride, Daniel MacArthur? I'm ready. Jeff and Susan met in the summer of 1997 on the beach in Galveston, Texas. The two don't really talk that much, but Jeff did hit it off with Susan's best friend's husband. But when Susan returned to her car to drive home, Jeff's business card was under her windshield wiper. Oh. Susan called Jeff and invited him to dinner. Even with the seven-year age gap, Susan was 21 and Jeff was 28, they hit it off and became one of those beautiful couples the kind that look perfectly put together on the outside, the kind we follow so intently on social media now, where we know it's all bull crap but can't help but be invested. You know, that couple. Can I interject? Yes, please. I have a quick question. If we met and we're adults, so we both got our respective jobs or whatever, if I liked you and I had a business card for my business, I guess, right? Yes. And I left that under your car. Would that work? Or is that too, like, I'm trying to show off that I have a business card? Well, this is 1997. Yeah. He was the top salesman of a carpet and flooring company. Ooh. So, you know, he was doing it. He was making it. So he left his card and put, call me. Yes. If you're interested, call me. And then if you're not interested, I'll come quote your price on flooring. There you go. All right. pretty soon after dating jeff began telling friends and family that susan was the one he had even changed his partying ways jeff was no longer going out every night he was no longer spending his money on booze ladies of the night aka sex workers and blow you know i i can totally relate to this because that's how i was before you you were Um, Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just hookers and blow like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) I was totally going to say that. And I stopped because I was like, are we allowed to say hookers anymore? (laughs) Hookers and blow. That's what it's like titties and beer. That's what they're called. No, they're not. Daniel. What are they called? They're called sex workers. And? No, but this is what you're supposed to call people who do that service for money. That's what you're supposed to call them now. And I actually agree. Isn't that considered a hookup? Yes. So you'd be a hooker. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. What? Okay. Let's just go on. Do you think we're offending all the hookers that listen to our show? Possibly. 
I guarantee you there's no hookers that listen to our show. Daniel? Because they're out busy right now. Okay. I love you. I love you, but it's time to move on. (laughs) Well, when I, and then I put on here, blow for you younger folks is cocaine. I think they know. You know, the white devil, snow, nose candy. You think there's someone listening that doesn't know what blow is? (laughs) Yes, I do, actually. Mm. All those teenagers who listen. So if you work in the cocaine industry, does that mean you have a blowjob? <laughs> All right. You know what? I'm just going to sit here quietly and you and you tell the story. Oh, okay. You tell the story and raise your hand when you're ready for me to say something stupid. Go ahead. Okay. After dating for a while, Susan told Jeff that she was pregnant. The couple were overjoyed. In October of 1998, at eight months pregnant, Jeff proposed to Susan, and she said yes. Two weeks later, the two were wed in a very intimate ceremony, choosing to dine at the local Outback Steakhouse for dinner. Smart move. I thought that was pretty smart. Why? Because it's Outback. Because you... No. What? Yes. Because then you can order a Bloomin' Onion. Who doesn't want Bloomin' Onion breath? On your wedding night. If you both have blooming onion breath, then it doesn't matter. It neutralizes, cancels each other out. Yeah, it's a party. Party in your mouth. Some people are into getting naked and getting a blooming onion. I don't know. It sounds like (laughs) a fun night. In November, the Wrights welcomed their son. Soon after, the family moved into their first home, a modest fixer-upper. The Wrights were thriving. Living out the perfect leave it to beaver American dream. Jeff was excelling at work, and Susan excelled at her stay at home wife and mommy duties. The house was immaculate, the sun was doted on, and dinner was always on the table within 15 minutes of Jeff getting home from work. This is perfection. It's like our house. <laughs> I just choked a little bit. It's exactly like our house. (laughs) I like the big sigh at the end of that, Daniel. In 2001, Susan gave birth to the couple's baby girl. Susan had experienced a little PPD after the birth of her son, but was able to manage her symptoms on her own. But after the birth of their daughter, the waves of depression and anxiety were too much to control on her own. When I say PPD, that's postpartum depression, just in case people don't know what that means. Susan was prescribed antidepressants. Jeff was not fond of his wife being on medication and was very vocal about that. Susan said that he forbade her from taking the prescription. No wife of his was going to be on antidepressants. Okay, so he wants the other part? He wants her to be depressed and... He didn't understand what she had to be depressed about because he was giving her this perfect life. Gotcha. But it was only, in his mind, perfect if she was perfect, meaning the house was clean, the dinner was on the table, the kids looked perfect. Just when I say leave it to Beaver, that's what he wanted. So he wanted to eliminate as much chaos, day-to-day chaos as possible. Yeah, very controlling. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. The little cracks within the Wright's marriage started to grow in size. 
On January 15, 2003, Susan walked into the Domestic Violence Division of the Harris County Police Precinct with her mom. She was there to file a domestic abuse report and ask for a restraining order. Susan told the officer that she was married to a monster. Jeff had been violent to Susan for years, emotionally and physically. He had also started using drugs and abusing alcohol again. Jeff had gone back to his partying ways. Okay, hold on. Yeah. He doesn't want her to take antidepressants, but he's he's okay with drugs and alcohol? Yeah, he's okay with snorting his paycheck up his nose and going on gambling trips to Vegas. What? I know. <sighs> I know. How do people have so much time? Never mind. I keep asking. So I'll just sit over here. <laughs> Susan said that two days earlier, she had found a pipe and white powder in Jeff's truck. Oh, no. She confronted him about what she had found and gave him an ultimatum. He either received help for his addictions or she and the children were leaving him. Jeff got pissed and grabbed Susan by the shoulders and slammed her body into the wall leaving an imprint of her petite frame in the wall. Yeah, because that seems reasonable. Jeff then walked out of the house and had not been seen by anyone since. He had not been to work, and his truck was still parked in the driveway. Jeff was not returning phone calls from his friends and family, who had become very concerned. But Susan knew exactly where Jeff was, buried in the backyard. See, I would have helped dig the hole. Okay, all right. Yes. I'm, just, I'm sorry. I've already, I've no, already decided. I know. I'm the, I know. That's why I can't be on a jury because I already know I already know what I'm going to say. I've already prejudiced myself. <laughs> After receiving the handwritten address, officers were dispatched to the Green Home on Berry Tree Drive. Sure enough, there was Jeff Wright buried face down in a shallow grave with what looked like one stab wound visible on his back and a hand missing believed to have been removed by the dog. <sighs> woof, woof. Okay, yeah. Oh, it said, was a chow. It was a chow. You know the term chow. Chows are kind of mean. Well, you know what the term chow down came from, right? Daniel. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, my gosh. This is How do you come up with these this things? This is absolute fact. No, not oh, at all. Oh, goodness. Please continue. Inside the master bedroom, officers found the bed disassembled. The blood-soaked mattress and box spring were found outside near the patio and Jeff's body. The wall above the bed frame was freshly painted. The carpet around the bed was cut out. Investigators made their way back outside where the bed had been stored. Near Jeff's grave was a flower pot where a three-inch curved hunting knife was found with the tip broken off. Suspicions immediately turned to Susan, but she was nowhere to be found. According to her attorney, she had checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. Jeff's body was removed from the makeshift grave and taken to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy. When he was pulled out of that grave, they realized that Susan had put him in the hole, allegedly, sitting, but folded forward. He was only in a three-foot hole. As a person who's dug many holes. Um, <laughs> in Bakersfield soil. In Bakersfield soil. Not for humans, not for bodies. I'll just say that. 
it's a it's a pain in the ass to dig a three foot <laughs> hole, much less a six. Now this is Houston, so it's probably soft, and they probably have a water table of one foot. <laughs> Maybe meaning you dig a hole and it fills up with water because there's there's water everywhere. So she put him so she in got, this hole. She got three feet down. Went that's enough. Someone did. Someone placed him in the three foot hole and folded him over. Seems fine. Folded him forward. Yes. Seems fine. Now that three foot hole. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this now. I was going to wait. But Jeff had dug that hole. That was where he was intending to put a water fountain. Oh. Yes. So he had dug his own grave. Gotcha. So it was an accident. He fell in. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what they found when they pulled him out. He fell on the knife and tumbled into the hole, it sounds like. All right. Well, authorities were shocked by the state of Jeff's six foot three 230-pound body. See, and I'm only 5'3", 230, so <laughs> that's he's – a, he's a healthy – he sounds like he's fit. Well, Jeff had been stabbed a total of 193 times. Yes, ladies what? and gentlemen, you heard that right. That is 193 times this man was stabbed. That's a lot of effort. I'd be sweating. I'd have to switch hands. Yeah, like good you thing you're ambidextrous. Yeah, you couldn't do that with the same hand. Well, 41 stab wounds were to the face. Oh. His face was basically obliterated. Right, right. 23 stab wounds in the neck, 46 in the chest, 22 in the abdomen, 7 stab wounds to the pubic area. Well, it's a smaller... It was, <laughs> wasn't very big, so they just... 19, okay, we can't laugh at this, 19 stab wounds to the legs, 23 to the arms and hands, and only one to the back. An x-ray showed that the tip of the knife had broken off in the top of his skull. So whoever did it just absolutely just lost it, went all out. Just wailed on him. Or 14 people all got together and each took four swipes at him. Maybe. Possibly. Doubt it. And superficial cuts to his penis. Uh, Only superficial? Only superficial. No Lorena Bobbitt? No. Jeff also had ligature marks to his wrists and ankles. Candle wax was found on his inner thigh and scrotum. Jeff also had traces of cocaine in his system, along with alcohol and GHB. Okay. Which, wow. that's interesting. So he was partying, and then he had candle wax? What's with the, the extra extra adult aerobics? It's all going to make sense. I bet. All okay. right. I'll just sit here and stop asking questions. Shut up. Will you stop? Well, hurry up. We want to get to the good part. <laughs> this is horrible. Okay. Well, the medical examiner also said... That not one of these stab wounds was actually what killed him, even though he was obliterated, right? Wait. He actually bled out. He died from loss of blood, which is wild to me. Because they were not, they were shallow stabs. Well, it was only a three-inch knife. Gotcha. Or what they think is only a three-inch knife. Okay. So we'll get into that, too. All right. Well, Susan was charged with the murder of her husband on January 23rd and turned herself in after being released from the Neuropsychiatric Center Ward of the Texas Medical Center at 9 a.m. on Friday the 24th. 
She spent the weekend in jail and by Monday was out on bond. $30,000 well spent. Yeah. Yeah. For the next 13 months, Harris County District Attorney Kelly Siegler built her case against Susan, knowing full well that Susan's defense team would plead self-defense. Absolutely. But according to the evidence Kelly's team was collecting, she knew Susan's version of the death of her husband, Jeff, just wasn't adding up. Kelly Siegler believed Jeff's death had not only been a murder, but had been premeditated. Now, Kelly Siegler is actually really famous. Her name might sound familiar to a lot of you true crime enthusiasts. She actually had a sh- has a show on TV, and she's been involved in cases, and she's done interviews about cases that she hasn't worked on. She's this cute little petite thing from Texas, but she has that rural Texas accent. Gotcha. If I showed you a picture of her, you would recognize her from all the shows that I make you watch. Okay. This case exploded in the media with both sides talking. Susan's defense team, of course, was pushing this narrative that Jeff was abusive and Susan just snapped. Okay. Okay. But that she stabbed him 193 times. That's a snap. Yeah, but wouldn't that... And never called the police. Wouldn't that be someone who has snapped... Because of all the years of abuse, she finally just let it all out and it came out in the form of 190, would you say 193 stabbing? They think actually it was over 200, but the stab wounds had overlapped. Right. So they couldn't. That's a lot. Yeah. And they were all horizontal stab wounds, by the way. So she held the knife perpendicular to his body. Right. So she's on his side. Okay. Right. Well, I probably need to tell you more information. Okay. Kelly Siegler said to a local news outlet that, quote unquote, self-defense means you're in immediate fear for your life or your children's lives. What can a man strap down to a bed do to you when you're holding at least one knife? How is that self-defense? So do we see where Kelly's going with this? Mm Mm-hmm. Susan's trial began on February 28, 2004. She pled not guilty on grounds of self-defense. It was a jury of 12, seven men and five women. The trial was set to last about two weeks. Susan's team made sure the jury knew about Jeff's drug and alcohol abuse, infidelity that resulted in Susan getting a sexually transmitted disease. She got the herp, to be exact. (sighs) So what happens in Vegas doesn't necessarily stay in Vegas. Am I right? I wouldn't know. (laughs) And his... (laughs) And his... Stop laughing. And his physical and emotional abuse of Susan throughout their four-year marriage. Calling up friends and family to the stand to corroborate. Some even said they'd seen bruises on Susan. But the thing that I don't understand is that... She did have people who said, I saw bruises on Susan. She had a black eye. But Susan never told anybody that this was happening at home. They wanted to be perceived as this perfect couple. So they say that they saw it and they knew that maybe something was going on. But nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever asked her, which was really interesting to me. Until... Right before the murder and after the murder. 
I bet I know why. Okay, why? I bet she put out such a strong my family's perfect vibe that people are like, you know what? Then I'm not going to say anything because you're so hell-bent on portraying this perfect marriage, perfect family, perfect whatever. I'm not even going to waste my time because you're going to just reject anything I say and you're going to deny anything. Like, hey, I noticed uh, you got bruises that are, you know, kind of similar to bruises from physical abuse. She, of course, would be like, oh, no, no, I tripped. I did this. I did this. So they're going to be like, okay, never mind. Fine. You know what? You think your life's perfect? Then we're not going to say anything. That's why I have such a hard time putting these kind of quote unquote influencers on such a high pedestal. Because to me, I guess it's just the Generation Xer in me, but I am pessimistic by nature. So I don't ever look at somebody's marriage and think that it's perfect, even if they're trying to portray a perfect image. I actually think most marriages are not good (laughs) or relationships. That's where my head goes. No, it just means that it's not perfect all the time. Like there's no such thing as perfect. Okay. You just go through life. And stuff happens. And it's true. There's no such thing as perfect. There's no such thing as perfect children, a perfect house, a perfect career. There's no such thing as perfection. Of course not. There was only one perfect person in this world. And there's always something that's going to break your perfect. So even if everything was perfect, then there's all the unknowns that are going to mess it up. Yeah. Which you have absolutely no control over. So. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, Kelly Siegler had her own approach. While questioning one of the investigators on the case, Kelly did something a little different. She had the Wright's king-size bed frame brought into the courtroom and started having it assembled in front of the jury and everyone in the courtroom. Once the slatted bed was erected, the actual bloody mattress was placed on top, along with the bright pink blood-stained sheet that had been found in the backyard. One of Kelly's male assistants laid down on the mattress. Kelly Siegler then started explaining what the state believed actually happened. Around 9 p.m. on January 13th, Susan lit some candles around the bedroom and began to seduce Jeff, both of them undressing. Jeff laid down in the middle of the mattress and Susan climbed on top of him, straddling him. He was then tied by his wrists, each with a necktie, to slats in the headboard. Susan then used two bathrobe sashes to tie each ankle to the footboard. The state portraying the sexual act as something that had happened a few times over the course of the Wright's marriage. Jeff was not worried or scared. He was excited. Susan blew out one of the candles and dripped the hot wax down the inside of Jeff's inner thigh and down onto his scrotum. That must have been when Jeff realized this was not for his sexual pleasure. I want you to picture this, though. Little petite district attorney Kelly Siegler is straddling her assistant, and she's acting this out in the middle of the courtroom. While I'm surprised they allowed that. Okay, but while the defense attorney was objecting to almost everything Kelly was doing, but she was allowed to keep doing it. So the judge was like overruled, 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 overruled. The judge was into it. 
I think he wanted to see what was going to happen. Oh, so I got to see this. Yeah. Instead of giving Jeff the greatest two minutes of his day, Susan pulled out the three-inch curved hunting knife and began stabbing Jeff over and over again until he was sufficiently dead. It was now time for Susan to clean up her mess, except she really hadn't thought that far out. She knew that Jeff had dug a hole near the patio slab for that fountain, so Susan decided to bury him in the hole that he had dug. She dragged him by his feet down the hallway and out into the backyard, causing some of the scratches that were found on Jeff's back post-mortem. But what was the motive, right? Because Kelly doesn't believe that Susan is a battered woman. So there has to be another motive. Sure. Well, we're talking money. We're talking the root of all evil. Jeff had a $200,000 life insurance policy with Susan as his main beneficiary. Now, $200,000 in 2003 is worth $324,000 today, which is a decent chunk of money, but yeah, not for a life. It doesn't seem worth it. No, none of this ever seems worth it. Two hundred grand, 2003 that's not. But, I mean, it'll keep you going a couple of years, maybe. Depending on her lifestyle. Stick with a budget. If you do the Dave Ramsey envelope thing. Yeah, but even then, depending on what she's doing, it sounds like she lives in kind of upscale neighborhood, right? A little bit. So that's not going to be enough. She won't even last two years on that money. What is interesting is that if Susan would have buried Jeff's body and it was never found, she would have had to wait seven years to collect on that money. What? Oh, because there's no body. There's no body. So they don't know where he is. Right. He ran away. So technically he's not dead. So they're saying, why didn't you do something else? He was a drug abuser. So why didn't you have him die of an overdose where there is a body? Or take him to a bad part of Houston and dump the body and say, oh, he must must have been a drug deal gone bad. Right. Um, Well, because she wasn't thinking clearly. She was not thinking clearly. Yeah. On day seven of the trial, Susan was called to the stand to finally tell her story leading up to what happened the night of the 13th. The first time she was ever beaten by Jeff was after their son was born. Jeff was high on marijuana and Susan told him not to bounce the newborn baby too much. Jeff exploded and threw Susan up against the wall, shaking her by the shoulders and punched her in the face. She's saying he was high on marijuana and not cocaine. There's a big difference between being high on marijuana and being high on cocaine. Cocaine, yes, aggressive, I get it. Marijuana, I feel like he would have just laughed. Okay, I, I can't say exactly what he did, but most people on marijuana, high on pot, are not crazy super aggressive. Yeah, because they're two different things. One is an upper, one's a downer. Right. So that, I don't know, that's one thing that just didn't make sense to me. Susan called her sister for advice, and the next morning while Jeff was at work, the sister and her husband showed up to the home and packed Susan and the baby up, taking them to her parents' home. Okay. The very next morning, Jeff showed up on the parents' front porch, and Susan returned home with her husband. Why would she leave, and why would the parents let her go? A lot of people said that Jeff was a smooth talker. I mean, he's a salesman. Okay, but if you're if the father of your grandkid 
through your daughter, right? beat up your daughter who just had a baby, you would not let her go home with him. There's no chance. No. I don't, uh, I don't, I wouldn't think I'd be like, get the hell out of here before I beat you unless, with an inch of your life. Unless you are an abuser as well. <sighs> yeah, which I guess, but her, which her father was to her mother. Oh, I right. know. I know. So you're okay. So we're playing the whole, that's why she's, this is normal behavior, unfortunately for her. Right. Like she's used to this. Yes. Damn it. I know. It's really sad case, guys. You're going to go back and forth and you're never really going to truly know what happened. None of us actually do. But okay. Am I going to regret saying that I would have helped dig the hole? No, I don't think so. Okay. Either way, he sounds like a piece of crap. Yes. Regardless. Even if he didn't deserve whatever she ultimately probably did to him. Okay. Well, Susan believed that she had been hit, pushed, and kicked at least 150 times in their four-year marriage, once every 10 days. The reason Susan did not get help was because she was scared and she was embarrassed. On the night of the 13th, Jeff came home from his boxing class high on cocaine. He began play fighting with their four-year-old son and hit him in the face. Susan told Jeff to stop, which just infuriated him. After the children were in bed, Susan confronted Jeff about his behavior after he had come out of the shower. He needed professional help, and she gave him the ultimatum, the drugs or his family. Jeff responded instantly and violently, knocking Susan to the floor, began kicking her in the stomach over and over again. Jeff then dragged Susan from the bathroom and into the bedroom, forcing her on the bed where he sexually assaulted her. After the horrific violation, Susan had her eyes closed when she heard Jeff mutter in her ear, Die, bitch. She opened her eyes to see Jeff standing over her with a hunting knife pulled from his bedside table. Susan knew at that moment that he was going to kill her. The five foot five, 120-pound Susan knew it was time to fight back. She began clawing at Jeff and was able to knee him hard in the groin. Jeff loosened his grip on the knife enough for Susan to get it away from him. She then started to stab him over and over again, unable to stop. So this is the same story that she had told investigators, her attorney, lots of people who wanted to know. This is the story that she told. But when she was on the stand, she added a little something to this. And I'm going to tell you. Suddenly, there was a knock on the bedroom door. It was their four-year-old son. Uh Uh-oh. Susan put on her robe, hid the knife, and tied Jeff's hand to the bed with one of his ties. She then opened the door enough to squeeze through and put the boy back to bed. After realizing that she had left the hunting knife in the bedroom and fearing that Jeff was still alive, Susan walked into the kitchen and retrieved another knife. Still terrified that Jeff was alive, so she began stabbing him over and over again with a different knife. With a different knife. Okay. And now unable to move his body on her own, She was able to get him off the bed and onto a metal dolly where she tied his hands with the neckties 
to stabilize him and tied his feet to the dolly with the sash from her bathrobe in order to keep him on the dolly. As she moved him out of the bedroom door, she ran into the dresser that had a lit candle burning. It spilled and dripped red candle wax on Jeff's leg. Nope. I'm I'm out, but go ahead. Okay. Even after haphazardly burying Jeff in the backyard, she still believed he was alive and going to kill her. Susan had not tried to cover up the scene. She was trying to clean the house for Jeff so he wouldn't be mad when he came home. The blood in her mind was dirt. Susan explained that the next five days, she was in a fog. Except that she did call family and friends to tell them that Jeff had just left her, even calling Jeff's parents a few minutes after the actual murder, talking to them for over an hour, telling them that Jeff had left her and the kids after he assaulted her, all this kind of stuff. Then she told them, Jeff's parents, a couple days later, that he had come back to the home and destroyed all her clothes and then picked up clothes for himself, but then left again. But what's he driving? That's my question. Yeah, that's his kind truck's of a in the weird... front yard. Yeah. She emptied their joint bank account, changed the outgoing message on the answering machine from Jeff's voice to her voice, and she sold some furniture. So there's a lot of planning going on here. Right. Unfortunately. Susan then filed a domestic violence claim against Jeff two days after she stabbed him to death. Huh. District Attorney Kelly Siegler hammered Susan on the stand. Oh, I bet. If she was in such a fog, why was she making trips to Target for more cleaning supplies, trying to clean the crime scene? Kelly concluded that after five days, Susan knew she couldn't keep up the charade So she called her mother confessing to the murder. Now, what I didn't mention is that Susan, at the age of 18, was a topless dancer. She was trying to put herself through nursing school. Me too. (laughs) Or was going to put herself through nursing school. But Kelly kept hammering uh, her on her eight weeks that she was a topless dancer, saying that she must, because only topless dancers know how to do bondage sex games. Like she must have learned that during her topless dancing stint for eight weeks. Okay. To me, that was the part where I was like, Kelly, come on. A lot of women put themselves through school or take care of their families by dancing at the local strip joint. That does not make you a murderer. No. That does not make you into bondage sex games. I don't know. She lost me on that one, but whatever. Whatever. Now, Kelly also questioned her about the bondage and the tying Jeff up because he did have deep lacerations in his hands or in his wrists, which means he was physically trying to get out of those bonds to probably protect himself from the knife being hurled at him. Yeah, and her tying him so that he wouldn't fall off something, no way. That's not going to create these ligature marks. No. And the chances of you bumping into a lit candle and it just happened to spill on the inside of his foot, there's zero chance that would happen. If somebody is into bondage, you're going to have more evidence around your bedroom. 
Probably. You would have more rope. You would have maybe some toys. Now, all they could find in the bedroom was a pair of handcuffs. And it wasn't even like the fluffy kind. It was just a regular pair of handcuffs. But they didn't find anything else. Okay. Which she could have gotten rid of all of that. Yeah. Or they were just very vanilla. They didn't need to use toys. Okay. So he has a drug addiction. Yes. She doesn't. No. So that's odd. Because usually they would either both be into something or or he's getting it on the side. It was also said that he had girlfriends on the side. He had a couple sex workers that were kind of his regular go-to girls. So he was not a perfect husband. He was not a model husband. He was actually not a very great husband. But... His addiction didn't start again until, I think until after the son was born is when it started up again. It's just odd that if he, if his thing is cocaine, if he's doing it by himself, that's weird to come home high on cocaine and your wife's like, I'm the stay-at-home mom. You know what I mean? I think he was partying a lot. Yeah, but you need someone to party with. I think he had some people to party with. Yeah. Kelly also kept asking Susan why she was slashing at his penis. This became a huge point in the cross-examination, was why were you stabbing at his penis or slicing at his penis? And then Susan said it was for all the times that he made me have sex with him when I didn't want to. Okay. But somehow she didn't sever it. No. It was never deep enough. Gotcha. Kelly also said... um, now, why would you bury him in the hole and just put potting soil on top of him? Were you going to plant flowers on top of his grave? Like, what was the plan? Did you have a plan? And she really didn't have a plan. So to me, I don't know how this can be that premeditated if she didn't even have a plan of what she was going to do with the body. Yeah, it sounds like she kind of almost had an out-of-body experience. Mm. Like, she did it and then just kind of didn't even, like, it just separated herself from reality but still was able to function in reality even though she had already done that she just kept saying i was in a fog i was in a fog but then you start to also see all these things that she did while she was in this quote-unquote fog it's like wait a minute you were able to function as a wife and a mom and try to clean up the scene you weren't in that much of a fog Although, wouldn't it occur to you that if the body's halfway out of a hole, that that's going to be a problem? Exactly. So she was in a fog because she's just completely like in denial and like insulated from it. Well, and she couldn't keep this dog from digging the body up. Wouldn't you go and fix it? Like go dig a deeper hole? No, she just kept buying more potting soil and putting over the top and the dog would just keep digging him up when you get rid of the dog yeah <laughs> i would i'd let the dog out and that would be it yeah okay and then kelly also said which i thought was interesting was why is it the only time you seem upset is when the jury members are in the room she called her out on that in the stand oh because interesting. most people that were in that courtroom were saying She was crying and seemed upset when the jury members were in there. But when the jury members were out, Uh, she'd be laughing and smiling. And 
So it's all an act. That's what Kelly was in trying Kelly's to hammer opinion. home. Yes. Susan was defiant, but stood her ground with Kelly. After closing arguments, the outcome of the trial rested firmly with the jury. Would they believe Susan's story of drug and domestic abuse during her four-year marriage, the fear of Jeff finally making good on his threats to finally kill her? Or would they believe the state's theory that Susan was a money-hungry former topless dancer with a flair for bondage and sex games who seized an opportunity to murder her husband when he was at his most vulnerable? One hour into jury deliberations, the jury asked if they could take another look at the bloody bed. Uh Uh-oh, that's bad. Uniformed deputies put the bed back together once again in the middle of the courtroom. What, is it an Ikea bed? (laughs) No, I don't think so. Goodness. The jury members were led into the courtroom and gazed at the mattress and the sheet for only a few minutes and then filed back out of the courtroom and back into their conference room. Four hours later, the jury had a verdict. Yeah. They had found Susan Wright guilty of the murder of her husband, Jeff Wright. The next day, Susan was sentenced to 25 years in a Texas prison. Under Texas law, Susan would be eligible for parole in half of the maximum time, so 12 and a half years. In 2008, during Susan's reappeal, an ex-fiancé of Jeff's, testified that Jeff was abusive to her doing their four-year relationship, that he had hit her, pushed her down flights of stairs. He tried to get her away from her family and really isolate her. Why she wasn't brought into the first hearing, I don't know the answer to that. Well, maybe uh, Kelly didn't know of her. So how could they subpoena her? Right. If they but, didn't even know she existed. But this case was huge. This was all over the media. So this ex-fiance would have seen all of the stories and television shows about this, but waited until 2008 to come forward. Okay, I have a quick question. Okay, what? I would say it's most people's human nature to naturally want to not be involved in things, especially if it was something that was bad. It's a dark part of your past. Mm. Would you want to be, would you want to get dragged into it and be in this like televised, over-dramatized jury trial? Well, and Jeff's ex-fiance, I do know her name, but she was married to a pretty famous NFL player. Yeah, I would. At the time. If I were her. So that was probably the reason why. I wouldn't come forward because she's probably like, you know what? He kind of deserved it. Even though he didn't deserve it, he kind of deserved it a little bit. So I'm not going to say anything. And so then she, you know, is found guilty. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to come forward and say, look, you know what? He was no peach. He did this stuff to me too. He was pretty abusive. So keep that in mind in her appeal. Texas Court of Appeals granted Susan a new sentencing hearing in 2009. And in 2010, Susan had her sentence reduced to 20 years. There you go. 47-year-old Susan was released on parole on December 30th, 2020, after spending 16 years in prison. So she's out. And then she caught COVID and died. (laughs) No, no. Oh. The two children were adopted and raised by Jeff's brother and his wife and had zero contact with their mother, 
during her incarceration. And I believe they don't want anything to do with her. Wow. Yes. So. So your father, your deceased father is an abusive drug addict. A monster. A monster. Is what he is portrayed as. She. Or what Susan said he was. Slashed him to death. Now she's a. Murderer. Murderer in prison. Yeah, I'm going to go with, I'm going to try and keep that separate from, from my life. That's horrible. Or keep that separate from the kids Ugh. as the adults who are raising them. I would do the same thing. I would be like, I'm taking these kids and they're mine and they're having no contact with her whatsoever. Fun fact. You ready for a fun fact? Is How could there be a fun fact? In it's not really fun. Oh, okay. In a CPS interview with the four-year-old son about the abuse of his mother, Susan, by his father, Jeff, the little boy said that he couldn't remember any instances of his dad ever hitting his mom, but did recall that Jeff had punched him in the cheek and that it happened even though he didn't do anything. Oh, I know. Poor little boy. I would think... God, I don't know. Four, you might start to remember things like your dad hitting your mom. They had interviewed him immediately. But that would be tough. Yeah. So it's not like he was interviewed a year or five years later. They interviewed him immediately. And there are so many amazing people that do that yeah. as a job where they can get kids to say things, not say things that are wrong. But to tell them the truth. You may dig up buried truth. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I know that's kind of controversial it because they controversial. say, oh, well, people can coerce kids into saying things that weren't true. Like, hey, don't you remember that? Don't you like trying to twist, twist yeah, things? Yeah, some don't have good intentions, but a lot do. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you my stupid opinion? Absolutely. Everyone's waiting for it. All right. So take it how you will, dot, dot, dot. Well, people already know what my stupid opinion is because <laughs> I already voiced it 43 times throughout this whole thing. So now let's hear yours. Well, Jeff was probably an ass, right? He was addicted to cocaine. He was an alcoholic. He did cheat on her all the time with girlfriends and with sex workers. But that was not what was on trial. What no. was on trial was whether or not Susan had acted in self-defense or was the stabbing premeditated. That's what the trial was about. Right. Now, if bondage is a thing in a relationship, I think there would have been more truth or more proof. Probably. I really think they would have found toys and more bondage material and outfits. I think if you were into that, you were fully into that. So Yeah, but maybe he wasn't in maybe she wasn't into that with him. Maybe he was with someone else. Okay, but Jeff trusted Susan enough to do something a bit different that night, right? Yeah. So they must have been in some sort of mood to do that. Okay. Can, all right, then here, can I give my theory? Okay, but I'm just saying that if bondage was not a thing, then for Susan to choose it that night means that they were swaying away from the normal, from the normal vanilla, you know, adult aerobics. But if he's high on cocaine, he is raring to go. He does cocaine, but she didn't. She did so not. So it's odd because he has to have an outlet for all that 
sexual frustration. Well, not even frustration. It's just it's a you're in, you know you're under drugs. But that's why people were on cocaine because like a crazy party drug, in a way. Right, but if you can last forever. Isn't that when you start bringing out all the fun stuff? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's odd that he had a cocaine thing, but she didn't. And that he was tied up or just happened to be tied up is what the state is saying. Yeah. So that she could perform a sexual act and use that as a way to have him bound and less likely to be able to get away and to hurt her in return. I think she had enough of it. And was like, I'm going to off this guy. He was high on cocaine and he's probably raring to go, so to speak. So she's like, hey, how about we get crazy tonight? How about I tie you up and we do all these things? And he's like, yeah, you know, like he's raring. I'm just saying it has to be premeditated if this was not a usual thing. If they had never done bondage before and you couldn't find any sort of other evidence that this was in their sexual relationship, then this had to be the first time. So this had to be premeditated because she knew he had to be unable to get away and unable to fight back. Maybe it's something he kept asking her about and she kept saying no. And finally, she's like, you know what? I'm just going to tell him I want to try it now. And he'll be all excited because he's like, oh, my gosh, good. She's finally wants to, you know, try this. So then she knew that would be her way in, so to speak. But I I just keep thinking, like, what was her end game? There was no plan. I think she snapped. But she snapped enough to come up with a plan to tie him to the bed and to stab him with a hunting knife and then go and get another knife to do that to him too. That's what I'm saying. This this case can go either way. I don't think it was that premeditated. I think she got him into that exposed position and it finally occurred to her that she finally had power. She finally had the upper hand. And all that stuff that was bottled up came out and she started just going to town on him. And he probably was high and all the other things. She probably hit her. Or sm- I don't know. And then she finally just let it loose, but she hadn't thought much beyond that. So I bet it went from that to just this crazed idea came over her to end it all and just started stabbing him without thinking. Mm. And just the rage just fed until she finally got it out. And to get it out took 190 something stabbings. I mean, talk about overkill. Talk about a rage killing. This was absolutely a rage killing. But- It was about whether or not this was self-defense or premeditated. That's what this case was about. And once again, we have two kids who lost both parents, but who sound like were raised by really amazing people. Yeah. So hopefully it all turned out really well for the kids. That's really what this boils down to is the kids. Now, this really reminded me of Basic Instinct. That movie was Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas. Yeah. But that was an ice pick that was used, but they were tied to the bed. And I was thinking, oh, did she get this idea from Basic Instinct? But Basic Instinct came out in 1992, which was basically 10 years before this case happened. So I don't remember the theme of Basic Instinct. I should probably watch it again. It was all about sex and control. Actually, it's a good movie. It's aged pretty well. And yeah. so has Sharon Stone. Yeah. Michael Douglas, uh, he's, all, he's all right. 
you know, he's still still doing his thing. Kirk Douglas, his dad, did well. <laughs> My information on this case came from a ton of articles. There's also a Snapped episode, 48 Hours Mystery, Deadly Women, and a Lifetime movie titled The Blue-Eyed Butcher, which is what this case is referred to as. Oh. The Blue-Eyed Butcher. But most of my information came from the book, A Wife's Revenge by Eric Francis. I read the book. Good job, Eric. Thank you, Eric. I did watch The Snapped, I believe. I didn't watch the movie. I didn't do any of that. Daniel, what did you think of my case? Well, I think you did it justice or as much justice as could have been done from our standpoint. Thank you. But I... I'm I'm Both kind of in the middle. Work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle mm-hmm. in that yes, technically it was premeditated, but I don't think it was a thought out premeditated murder. I think something started and she snapped mid start and it went from not necessarily premeditated to she just did it without thinking of the outcome and then tried to cover it up, but she was already in that snapped state of mind. I mean, Jeff sounded like an ass. Oh, absolutely. He yeah, sounded like, I said, like I, a really horrible husband. I kind of wish he would have dug the hole deeper and then wouldn't <laughs> have to go through all this. Oh, goodness. But then again, like, uh, I don't know. I just wish that when we look back in the, you know, 2000s, early 2000s, there still weren't enough resources for women who were being battered. That's true. And I just wish that things could have changed a lot sooner. Because there are a lot of resources now. And if you are being abused and you are listening to this, please let us know or let somebody know. Oh, God. Yeah. There are a lot of places to help you. And I've said this before, but churches, go to a church. I promise you they will help you. Yeah. That is what churches are ultimately for, are to yeah. help people. So please, please, for your sake and for probably your children's sake, Please go to your local church. They'll probably give you the strength needed to make the act to do the right thing. Absolutely. As opposed to you just having to make the act. And we're here too. If you need any help, please message us and we'll do everything that we can. Yeah. But don't let it lead to something like this. And don't let it lead to your demise also. Oh, can I make one last quick thought? (laughs) Yes. So here's another angle to think. Okay. Ultimately, do you think she is a danger to any other person in society? No. Okay. So if you can say it that quickly and you're in the justice system. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm I'm hypothetically. (laughs) Okay. That's how you decide, is this person really a danger to society? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's how they determine sentencing. It's funny that you say that because that's exactly what the jury was saying. The jury was saying they did not believe it was necessarily self-defense. They did believe that something was occurring in that home. Right. And the shortest sentence that they could give her under Texas state law was 25 years. Yeah. So there you go. There's your answer. Okay. So you get a crazy person who, you know, what? I don't know. I'm trying to think of the most horrible thing. Murders school children, random people in a mall, to church, people walking down the street. Mm. Those people do not deserve to ever get out because they are a 
imminent danger to society. They're the da- they're a danger to everybody else. A- absolutely. Yes. There's unfortunately there's probably nothing you can do for them except keep them away from society. She like I just asked you, which obviously you're an expert. <laughs> Shut up. Is she a danger to society? Absolutely not. Okay, well no. then then that's when you have to there's a fine line in justice. So, I don't know. That's my final thought. I'll stop. All right. So did you enjoy my case? I mean, you can't really enjoy these, but I mean, yeah. this kind of kept you riveted, right? Yeah. It made me have to sit and think. Like, at first, I'm all in. I'm like, I'm going to go get a backhoe. I'm going to help her bury the body. Damn it. If I was her neighbor, I would have helped <laughs> to, well, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yes. No. Maybe so. All right. We got some Patreon shout outs. Okay. I wrote them out for you. Do you want me to shout? Yeah, shout it. No, don't shout. shout. You're going to bust out some eardrums. Let it all out. These are the patrons (laughs) you have read about. Come on. Stop. What am I doing? You're reading these Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. PJ Hatmaker, I love your name. Thank you so much for being a Patreon. Really appreciate it. Corey Ann R. Thanks, Corey. Tracy S. Thank you, Tracy. Mama Jen. Thanks. Really? Mama? Do I say thanks, Mama? Mama Jen. That's what she's going thanks, by. Thanks, Mama Jen. Jennifer B. Thanks, Jennifer. Maybe you want to go by Mama Jen, too. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining. Ugh. Thank you for You're putting up. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for putting up with me. In order to get to her. Oh, I get it. That's, my gosh. Oh, right. We all think that's true. Well. No. 27.5% of you. No. If you have a case suggestion, please send it to me at tilldeathdoespart at att.net. And if you are interested in more of us, there's always Patreon. And we are only on Instagram at tilldeathdoespartpodcast. So come check us out over there. Come say hi. And if any of my factoids are offensive, (laughs) don't worry. There will probably be more. You'll be more offended in future. But in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Because I try not to repeat them, but sometimes I do. (laughs) Daniel, what do you call a lady of the night now? A prostitute. No. (sighs) What are you supposed to call them now? This is the only thing that I really care about you changing your vernacular. I chose exhaust headers for my car for a very specific reason. Why? Because of the manufacturer's name is Hooker. (laughs) And next to their name (sighs) is a heart, and it's called Hooker. And that's the name of the company. And they make fantastic exhaust products for racing Daniel. Street strip. Daniel. So hooker headers. They aren't called lady of the night sex worker headers. They're called hooker headers. Daniel, so. can you just do me this favor? So what do we now call <sighs> these women? Adult aerobic class leaders. Oh, my gosh. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks bye. for everything. Oh, wait. What? Be careful. This marriage is what? Because marriage is a life sentence. And Daniel is about to get chewed out. Oh, my God. <laughs> bye. Bye.